All right, if you open your Bibles to uh, Exodus chapter 8, we're going to go through big, <clears throat> excuse me, big chunk of that. Hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving for the first time, I think, in a long time. I, I was saying last year I didn't do anything on Thanksgiving. I usually cook the turkey. I cook a stinking good turkey, too. So hot, upside down. Oh, I won't even tell you. It's just good and fast. But I didn't cook the turkey. It was still wonderful. But I basically committed to I was going to go to our family gathering. And this might sound really selfish, but I was going to sit. I was going to eat, sit, rest, watch a disappointing football game. But watch football, and it was wonderful. I just relaxed and didn't do much of anything. My kids ran around and caused mayhem, so it was awesome. But I had a good time, so I hope you did too. Last week, though, uh, we go straight through Exodus. We go straight through books of the Bible, read every word, genealogies and all. And so last week, as, we were, as I was approaching Thanksgiving, I'm like, great, we got God's wrath here. So last week we talked a lot about God's wrath, uh, and specifically... Um, I was hoping that we would end that service, whether we attained it or not, with the idea of being actually thankful for God's wrath. Because in God's wrath, we see, uh, perhaps in a different way, in the, in the ten plagues that He unleashes on this nation, um, like no other time in history, is that we begin to see that this is the expected and even the desired reaction that we would want from a God who is truly good, who is truly holy and truly just. And in fact, if He is those things, then He has to react to that which is dark and sinful that way. And yet, I don't want it, or my hope is that it didn't take us to a place like the Egyptians were at, where they're so scared of their gods and they appease them with sacrifices or whatever so that you know, they don't get struck by lightning the next day but that it in fact leads us to the cross where we see this wrathful, just God punishing sin, but pouring it out on Himself for us. And so that as we really think about God's wrath, it leads us to a place where we are most loved. And we do see, though, His wrath um, not just forgotten. And so, um, as I've been studying these plagues, it's been very difficult to put together sermons because... I mean, I don't, I don't study the Bible hoping that I can really like beat everyone up and like just talk about sin and bad stuff all the time. But there's a lot in there. And so my hope is that I spend a lot of time just praying through this and meditating on it, reading it, so that God will teach me something, and which usually results in Him beating the snot out of me. Um, and I li- literally, and I'm just sharing what He has uh, taught me with you guys. But Romans 15.4 says something I think we should never forget, as Paul writes in his letter to the Romans. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. And what that says, quite simply, is that all the Scripture, even those passages about the wrath of God and the anger of God, are supposed to, in some way, help us to endure and to encourage us, and to actually give us hope. And I think it's hope that there is a one true God who is going to make things right, and is making things right, and who deeply, deeply loves us. Um, Moses and Aaron and Joshua, as they led uh, Israel, and in the future prophets and all the leaders of Israel, were always calling Israel to remember. They were always saying, remember what God did in Egypt. Remember the wrath that he poured out on Egypt. 
And the purpose of him doing that was, I think, a couplefold. One was it was to prevent us from sinning. It's to kind of not scare us, but I don't, I don't mean fearful is always that bad of being scared of what the consequences of sin might be. But he was always saying, remember the wrath, remember so that, so that you don't go into idolatry. Because what was typically happening is that Israel at those times was doing just that, was going to follow other gods. And so they say, remember what happened in Exodus. Remember how he poured out on all these false gods and proved that that's what they were, false gods. And so all of sin, all of sin, I talked about this last week, is first and foremost idolatry. You break the first commandment, as Martin Luther taught, before you break any other commandments. And so, our sin is really idolatry. And we worship other gods. And God unleashes His wrath in different ways toward that end. Two ways in particular. Sometimes God unleashes His wrath very passively. And what that means is He allows people to follow the lust of their eyes, the lust of the flesh, their pride, and follow and pursue their idols. He doesn't restrain them from what they desire. And that is, in very real way, wrathful. Because think about a child and giving them everything they desire. What they desire is not always what was best for them. And refusing to restrain your child is, in very real way, wrath. But he's also active at times. Where in Exodus, he just pours out wrath directly. And so, as we look at all the brokenness in this world, I think that we can say that, if nothing else, it's God not restraining something or someone. But perhaps some of it is more active. And I don't know if we can really identify what is what. But it's all God's wrath. And so, as, a, as I studied this week, I tried to imagine what the Hebrews were thinking as they saw their world kind of crumbling around them. Because we haven't really heard much about them. And you don't throughout all the plagues. You hear some uh, near the end of the plagues where you get to the 10th plague and they're told some specific instructions to avoid the wrath. But the last we heard, which was back in Exodus 6, is when Moses and Aaron went before Pharaoh and Pharaoh said, all right, I'm making your slavery twice as hard. And he made it harsh and they were beaten and they had huge quotas and they couldn't meet the quotas. And so there was a a no-win situation for them. It got twice as bad. And so they complained to Moses and they said, Moses, you screwed up. I don't know what you said, but you must have not told them what God said because things have gotten worse. And Moses went to God complaining. And God basically said, I'm in control. And he went back and he told the Israelites, don't worry, God's in control. He's going to redeem you. And they didn't listen to him. It says they had a broken spirit. And so you don't hear hear from him again. And until the fourth plague, which we'll talk about next week, You don't hear about them being protected from these plagues. So, as their world is crumbling around them, they're also experiencing some of this wrath. They experience the Nile being turned to blood and the hardship that that probably brought. They experience what we'll see today, the frogs. They experience the gnats. And the fourth plague comes, God says, I'm going to set you apart. But until that time, they're experiencing, so I'm wondering, like, what are they thinking at this time? From a broken-spirited situation where slavery is still harsh, They're still getting beaten and killed. They're still not meeting their quotas. They're getting up every day with a hopeless, you know, life of, I have to work. And I'm working to an end that's going to end in my death, probably. And are they spiritual? 
like we would describe, are they spiritual? They're like, you know, the Lord's in control. And they see all this pain and brokenness. Are they thinking, you know, God is faithful. He said He's going to redeem us. I don't know. I wonder if He's saying, if they're going like, you know, what the beep is going on? Where is God? Our slavery is worse. And now the nation's falling apart. What's going on? Do they see the reason for the wrath? And I honestly kind of looked at this week uh, the idols of our own world because we've got tons of them. And maybe for the first time in a long time because of how the world is right now and our economy is and um, just the pain that is, you read the newspaper, you start to see, I, for whatever reason or in a new way, the idols of our world. Black Friday, you know, you see lines at stores starting at like 12.01 a.m. So people can just, you know, I have nothing against buying stuff, but buying up at 12.01 a.m., unless it's for a Star Wars movie, is just stupid, you know? <laughs> but they're lining up so they can spend their money. And you've got, I drive through neighborhoods now, you see foreclosure signs on houses. You see uh, really interesting espresso stands popping up everywhere. You have speeches from all kinds of world leaders and telling how they're going to change the world and save the world. You've got people being crushed at Walmart, which is just terrible. And you look at this stuff and you start to see, okay, what, what is going Look at all the idols that we have. And then I start talking to friends um, who are losing their jobs, people in our church who have lost their jobs. Um, people who are losing their homes, people who um, are experiencing the consequences of maybe their own sinful choices because of how their finances came together, or a lot of us is so out of control we're experiencing the sinful choices of other people, and we can't control it. And I wonder as we see, because it is without question the wrath of God. Whether it's the active wrath or the passive wrath, I don't know, but he's not restraining some things. He's allowing people to pursue their greed, and that's caused a lot of us some bad stuff to happen. And the question is, where will it lead us? Where will it lead us? And we have an example of where it's going to lead Pharaoh here. And he cries out to God. And I pray that we do cry out to God, but we're going to see that there's a lot of different things you can cry out to God for, and ways and attitudes you can approach Him. And... There's one thing you can ask, which is to make it better. And Pharaoh asks that. Make the situation better. But I'm not convinced that's why God's sending the wrath. And I do know that asking God to change it is a very different request than asking God to change me. And I think he might be more interested in the changing me part, like Pharaoh. Because we approach these passages sometimes, and we always want to be like Moses in it, right? Like, here's the way I'm Pharaoh. But I'm beginning to believe that a lot of these passages, I'm like the bad guy in most of them. I'm Pharaoh. I'm not Moses, not Jesus. I'm usually the guy that's the bad guy. And so I want to take a look at what his request is as his world crumbles around and what happens. We're going to go into Exodus chapter 8. We uh, just finished looking at the first plague and the Nile that was uh, destroyed. The Nile, uh, the God of the Nile, there's several, but the main one is called Happy strange, H-A-P-I, 
Um, because, not because, but ironically, their happiness comes from that. It's the economic uh, lifeblood. And literally, the Nile is seen as the bloodstream of Osiris. And so you have this terrible condemnation on their gods, well, their main gods, but also just an economic um, destruction or devastation that they have to deal with, as did the Israelites. So in Exodus chapter 8, following that, a week long of that, it goes away after a while. He doesn't warn Pharaoh with the Nile, just says this is going to happen. And here he warns him of what will happen if he disobeys. And it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and onto your bed and into the houses of your servants and into your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. And the frogs shall come up on you and your people and all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. And so Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Now, God brings frogs as a consequence for his sin, his refusal to obey and release the people. Now, an abundance of frogs in the Nile is not really a strange thing. Uh, every year the Nile would flood and large pools would be created and frogs were part of the culture or the landscape of Egypt. And so much so that they became very important to the Egyptians. They worshipped these frogs. They expected these frogs. And there was myriads of them. There's a ton of them. So much that the, the term frog in Egyptian actually is a term that became to, un, to describe the number 100,000. So when you use the term frog, whatever the Egyptian term was, it was a big number because there was lots of them. And so to have a lot of frogs is not unusual. So when we see God commanding that frogs come out of the Nile, which they typically stayed in the Nile, at least in the water, come out of the Nile and swarm over the country, it is hundreds and hundreds of thousands of frogs. It's not just your typical number that they would expect. And I don't even know if we can imagine the number of frogs that's coming in, but they were everywhere. And he says in particular, they came into their house, they came into their kitchens, they came into their beds and their bedrooms and their pillows and their clothes, in their bowls, the vessels they used in their ovens, which were basically large holes that they would heat, pouring out frogs everywhere. You couldn't step probably without squishing a frog. Big, small, all shapes and sizes. So there were frogs everywhere. And a frog, religiously in their culture, was a theophany or, or a personification of the god, I think it's Hecht, H-E-Q-T, I don't know how to pronounce it. And it was this goddess of fertility, a goddess of, of birth. And so the women, when they were pregnant, the Egyptian women, they would always have amulets. If you Googled H-E-Q-T, you'd see these little statues of frogs because the goddess had a head of a frog and body of frog and then like human legs or something. It was kind of weird looking. But they had these amulets because they felt that the, they would be blessed and protected in their birth and they would be more fertile. And the thing about frogs is, 
There's nothing really wrong with frogs. And people have like, maybe it's someone that collects frogs. You know, people have kind of their little weird things. Like I collect little donkeys and cows and frogs. And there's nothing wrong with frogs. Frogs are cute. Kermit the frog, all that stuff. Okay, he's wonderful. But this is how sin works. Is that sin takes those things that are good and causes us to worship them. And the thing about making lists of bad stuff and good stuff is that all that good stuff you think is good can very quickly jump onto the bad list when sin comes in. God made a wonderful world, created a world, and he said it was good and everything in it, including the frogs. But when you begin to idolize something, that's when sin begins to infest it and infest everything. So you look at sex, money, alcohol, anything you'd say that people would worship, wonderful things. Government, God's idea, wonderful thing. But when sin comes in, it perverts that wonderful thing and makes it chaotic and destructive and evil. So we have to be very careful identifying the thing is bad and what's behind is what's bad. What's in us is bad. We make good things bad through our sin. Even doing good can become a sinful thing as we become prideful for doing good. That's how sick sin is. It infects everything. So your little list doesn't work too well. Because the very fact that you made a list means you're self-righteous, okay? You're, you're, you're missing the point. You're missing the point. And so I see these frogs, and I go, frogs, they're not evil. They don't hate anybody. But God used them because, in many ways, they were idolizing them and worshiping them. And this is the first time that God says, look, if you sin, there's going to be a consequence to Pharaoh. And this man's, con- this man's sin, this one sin of this one guy, results in consequences for his entire nation, for everyone who didn't make, quote, the sinful choice. I don't even know who could have seen him refuse, who was there during the meeting. But because of his one choice, it goes into everyone, into his family, into his home, into his bedroom, into his servants, into his people, into the Israelites' homes and their families. And that is the danger of sin. This is why sin is something we can't take lightly. Because if you bring sin into your heart, into your home, it is going to bleed out and infect everything. If you are living in sin, it will, I guarantee you, the consequences will have a ripple effect and it will affect your bed and your bedroom and your marriage and your family and your job and your finances, it will affect everything because that idol, that thing that you're worshiping requires sacrifice, requires service, requires that you praise it, which means you cannot praise anything else. Your sin will impact every part of your life, whether it's done privately or publicly. Until you confess your sin, until you repent it, things will never get better. They will not get better. And we live under the delusion, it's a foolish, foolish delusion that our sin will not be found out. That we can manage it. That we can keep it under control. That's the biggest lie Satan wants you to believe. And the scary thing is that you only realize that you're not in control after you've devastated your family. And after you've devastated and lost your job. That's when you find out. Oops. And so, his one sin impacts everyone. 
In verse 8, when the magicians can't, although they did reproduce it, which I kind of believe, doesn't say Satan helped them, like, you know, call out frogs out of the water. I think they were like magicians. I think it was kind of illusion, like, don't worry, Pharaoh, we can do it too. Boop, you know, ribbit. And there's like a frog that they like picked up or something. Whatever. They, the magicians are pretty good at stuff. So they made it look like they could make frogs appear so it wasn't God working. But they couldn't take them away. And they kept coming. And so Pharaoh calls in Moses. In verse 8 he says, And Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people. And I'll let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. And Moses said to Pharaoh, Will be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people and for your servants and for your people. Oh, I just read that. And the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, Tomorrow. Tomorrow. Moses said, All right, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. And the frogs shall go away from you and from your houses and your servants and your people. And they shall be left only in the Nile. And so, very humbly, this nation leader, the strongest guy in the world probably at the time, calls a Hebrew slave and a fugitive to come and help. And it's amazing how unpopular atheism gets when things get really bad and out of control. And how many people cry out to God and plea for something bigger than Him. It's almost as innately they know, Romans chapter 1, like they know that there is a God. They know there's someone, a person they can appeal to to make things right. He calls in Moses and he cries out to him and he says, plead with God. Now, you've got to recognize what he says here because, again, I really feel like we're Pharaoh here. So let's just go with it. He says, plead with God. What do you want me to plead? Plead with Him to take away the frogs. Take them away. It's really bad. They're everywhere. Take away the frogs. Take them away from my house. Take them away from my servants' houses. Take them away from my people. Take them away. You never hear something in there. There's no recognition of who God is. There's no humility in His approach and approach to, to the holy, almighty, powerful God. It's as if He's bargaining with Him. It's okay, well, you give me this, and, you know, I'll take care of you, God. Seems backwards. But I don't know how different it is from us who say, you know, give me this job. Give me, you know, some kids. Let me get pregnant. Make my marriage better. Take my sickness away. Just make the situation better, and then I'll obey you. I'll do it your way, God, once you come through for me. I think it sounds very familiar to me. Maybe, you know, everyone else is way more spiritual. But it sounds very familiar to me. Bargaining with God. Take the situation away. Now, it's not wrong to pray, take the frogs away. I think all of us would be praying, God, these frogs are sick. Get them away. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But that's all that's prayed. That's it. He didn't confess that, you know, I've rebelled. 
Forgive me for disobeying. Forgive me for slaughtering your people and throwing kids into the river. Forgive me for beating your people and setting quotas that they can't reach. Forgive me for flat out flipping you the spiritual middle finger when you told me to do something. Forgive me for denying your power. Forgive me for finding my hope and security and joy and stuff like frogs. He didn't say any of that. He just says, take away the frogs. Well, take away the frogs is a completely different request than take away my sin. And I think a lot of us, myself included, focus so much on this. Take away my frogs. Make my situation better when God is doing that so that you deal with this. Take away my sin, my idolatry. The frogs are not the problem. The crumbling world is not the issue that God is trying to get through. It's His refusal to follow and worship the one true God. And so He slowly takes away His idols. Now, I think it's really wild that first that Moses even says, and he's being, I guess, somewhat clever, tell me when. When would you like this to happen? And I know what Moses' intent is. He wants to, you know, because if it goes away the next day and he has not said that it will be the next day, then Pharaoh will be like, well, gee, it went away naturally. So he says, tell me. Next week, tomorrow, whatever. And he says, tomorrow. He says, tomorrow. Take the frogs tomorrow. And literally says, well, then I'll begin to obey tomorrow too. Because once you take the frogs, I'll obey so we'll start tomorrow. I know that you know the consequences of my sin are devastating and totally disgusting. And they've totally ravaged my family and the families of a bunch of other people. But I'm going to go ahead and rebel one more night, if that's all right. That's really what he's saying. It's clear that his request is, doesn't come from a guy that's with a broken heart. He just wants the situation fixed. I'll start... Obeying tomorrow. Anyone that focuses on the tomorrows, I'm going to obey tomorrow, it's going to be better tomorrow, is forgetting that they've offended God today. That's where God wants us to start. I mean, imagine if Paul, like, you know, after he's knocked off his horse on the road to Damascus, he's like, boom, oh, who is that, Lord? He's like, it's Jesus, you're persecuting me. Stop. I'll think about that. You don't think about that when you're face-to-face with the Almighty God who can say at any moment, stop breathing. Bye. It's a terrible thing to sit in the hands of a wrathful God. Let me get back to you tomorrow. Let me get back to you tomorrow. But Moses listens to him, and in verse 12, he agrees. He says this, So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs, as he had agreed to do with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses, and the frogs died out in the houses, and the courtyards, and the fields. And they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. I love that. I guess I just kind of like stinky stuff. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, rest from it, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord 
had said. So tomorrow comes, and the frogs die out, except the ones that are in the Nile. But they don't disappear. They just die right there, where they're at, in the pillows, in the beds, in the kitchen, in the ovens. It's like, just die. And it's ironic because it's sacred. You can't even kill a frog. If you accidentally touched a frog in such a way that you harmed them, you actually could be punished by death. So uh, they, didn't, they couldn't touch them. But God wipes them all out, and they all die. And because they all die there, they have to gather them into piles. And again, we're not talking about, <clears throat> I don't know if you remember, I, I certainly do in high school, when you would uh, dissect frogs. Um, I always loved dissection, because I just like cutting into stuff. Like, if I find something on my skin, I'm always like, you know, like digging in, because it's weird like that. So I think I was probably supposed to be a surgeon, but it didn't happen. But in biology class, they would give you the dissection period, right? And the girls, well, not all the girls, but most of them were like, you know, just like, this is disgusting. And the guys were like taking legs off going, can you like cook this on the Bunsen burner? You know, because it was like, it was cool. It was, you could cut something open. And they had these frogs in bags, and you take them out, and they've been like soaking in some kind of Weird fluid, iodine or something. So it had like kind of a weird medicinal stink to them. Didn't really smell like frog, right? But then you'd like put them down on like a like piece of rubber. And this is what I did. And you'd cut them open and you'd put like these pins on them and stuff. And so it's like, you know, this frog's like all spread out there. And you're like, cool, I don't know what this is, but it's cool. And you're like, you know, here's the heart. And it was just kind of neat. But then it would sit there all week. We'd start like the beginning of the week and you'd, you know, have to go through each system. It wasn't just like a real quick thing. So eventually, you know, you'd come into the classroom every day, oh, it'd start to smell, you know. And the iodine eventually would wear off, and after a while, your hands smell like it, your clothes smell like it, you know, you're going to eat your little, like, Oreo cookie at lunch, you're like, dude, this is like frog gut. So frogs everywhere just reek, right? It start to, it's just stunk because it's just up and out there. So now imagine, this isn't like a class of 25 people in a classroom, this is hundreds of thousands Hundreds of thousands, I don't even think we can fathom it, where you can't even step without stepping on a frog. And they're making these huge mounds of frogs among the streets, in the courtyards, right outside their homes, because they're not going to take them a long way. And these aren't, like, this isn't the time where they've got, like, just the backhoe. Beep, beep. Although they probably need one, they're, like, shoveling it in baskets. And most likely, the Israelites are doing a lot of work. So they're piling these frogs on these piles in Egypt. Ain't the Northwest, right? It would take, I watched on YouTube how long it took for something to decompose. Because it's just kind of cool. Guys like that stuff. So I was watching a rabbit. Some guy put a camera on a rabbit to see how long it would decompose. It was cool. But it was like two weeks or something in the middle of the wilderness. It's like, you know, it turns into dirt or whatever. And they have all kinds of other things you can watch decompose if you're interested. YouTube, decompose. You have fun. But you think about, okay, that's just one rabbit. You think about a pile of frogs... I mean, we think fish, but frogs is pretty close to it, rotting. And so Pharaoh, as he's getting, you know, waved with his palm branches and sipping on pomegranate juice, will look out the window and see these piles of frogs cooking in the hot desert sun. I don't know how long it took, but it took a lot. So long that it started to stink everywhere. The nation stunk. They probably could not get away from it. They didn't have the fans. You know, Pharaoh's got people like waving like this probably the whole time to get the smell away, but they're throwing perfumes and they're only sticking mummies in their nose. I mean, they're just like stinking everywhere. 
And I can't help but think that that's exactly what happens with sin. And I'm talking about the consequences of sin, because even when forgiveness happens, even when restoration happens, without question, there's usually a stink left. And typically, the people who have to clean up the mess is not the person who sinned. And it smells and it takes a while for it to go away, which I don't necessarily think is a bad thing. Because I think there's some level where shame and stink will remind us and protect us from not making the same mistake. But Pharaoh does. Even the stink and the devastation that he sees daily for several weeks right in front of him does not stop him from continuing to disobey. And you see that, and you go, are you kidding me? Who could not see that devastation? Who could not see that stuff happening and all the pain and suffering and stink that they caused and continue to sin? Welcome to the life of an addict. But the scary thing is, and I heard recently in a seminar, is that an addict is just an idolater. Just. An addict is an idolater. Every addict is one. And every idolater is an addict. And guess what? We're all idolaters. And we continue to go back to that thing, even though we see the devastation that it causes. Even though, and I've met men and women who have devastated their families and they say, oh, I'm going to make changes. I'm going to do better. I'm going to work harder. But there's a difference because I've seen it between someone who's truly repentant and have seen how their sin has offended God and someone who is just really sorry for the consequences that have occurred. There's a huge difference. And quite honestly, I've seen people who have experienced ridiculous consequences for their sin. And it hasn't changed them. And it's one of the most, I guess, pressing arguments for me of why I believe in God's sovereignty. Why I believe that God is the one who has to initiate that repentance in someone's heart. Because consequences just... Although they're pretty good teachers, they don't change someone's heart. They really don't. But Pharaoh's a great example of that. It's a great example of someone who doesn't see the root of the problem is in their heart. I'm not outside of them. In verse 16, after the stink has died down, God notices, right, realizes that and knew that he's not going to repent, and he sins again. So this time he doesn't give him a warning, and he makes it a lot worse. Verse 16, he sends another plague, and it's implied that it's response to his false repentance, we'll call it. The Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so, and Aaron stretched out his hand with the staff and struck the dust of the earth. And there were gnats on man and beast, and all the dust of the earth 
became gnats in all the land of Egypt. All the dust of the earth. Now, it's obviously a little bit of hyperbole, but it's using dust to describe the number of gnats that were there. Not just a few mosquitoes. A lot. Like the kind where you like are riding your bike through and you like swallow them the whole time. Like just imagine standing outside and swallowing them. Okay. Not that I've swallowed a lot, but a few. In verse 18, the magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. And so there were gnats on man and beast. And then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. See, false repentance always makes things a little bit better momentarily. But that's all it is, is a moment, because then things always get worse. And this time, no warning, he unleashes gnats, which different translations say it differently. Some say it's lice. Some say it's gnats, like mosquitoes. Some say it's fleas. The Hebrew word talks about the idea of to dig. That's the root. So whatever it is, there's some insect thing most likely getting in the skin, sucking blood, planting eggs, whatever you want, all over everything. If it's the frogs, you can kind of ignore it. You can plug your nose, put a little nose clip thing on there like you see in the cartoons, right? So you don't have to smell it. You can kind of avoid it if you want. There's no avoiding this, especially for the priests who had a ritual of shaving everything off their body and just wearing a tunic. So they're really feeling it, digging all over themselves. It always gets worse with false repentance. Never better. False repentance is really no repentance. Even if it looks like someone's changed their behavior. And we can't really evaluate that until more devastation maybe comes. But false repentance, at the core of it, is that we have regret over the consequences of our sin. We're not really sorrowful for the sin itself, and that's offended God. We're sorry about what happened to us. And this isn't self-repentance. This is, as Keller would call it, self-pity. And you only avoid the sin because you want to avoid getting hurt again. In an effort to avoid the hurt, you'll get really creative about, you know, how you sin. But you most likely will continue to. And false repentance guarantees that the sin will come up and come back again. And most likely it will come back more devastating. Because the root of all of our suffering, the root of all of our anxiety, of our lack of peace, our absence of joy, our continued sin, is idolatry. It's idolatry. And so I've been sitting on this all week because you read a plague about gnats and frogs, you're like, how the heck does that apply to us? What am I supposed to teach about this? So I've been meditating it, reading it, and the Lord show me. And I kept going back to the reason behind the plagues, the reason behind the gnats, the reason why God keeps slapping Pharaoh upside the head because he's just not getting it. Now, Pharaoh's just pretending. Pretending. So I got to my own heart. And I realized that when the world as it is, 
starts crumbling around us, as you see this world crumbling around us, I think we all need to ask ourselves some really hard questions. Perhaps the crumbling, whether it be the economy, your health, whatever it happens to me, maybe the crumbling is revealing to you that, and me, that you're finding your peace and your joy and your meaning in something other than the one true God. I mean, God's wrath in Exodus is very clearly an attack on some very specific idols. And there's over 2,000, but there's some major ones. The Nile is the god of, of their economy. It just destroys it. The frogs was the god of their birth and fertility of their families. Lots of people make idols of their families, and they think that they're doing a good thing. And then when their teenager hates their guts, they're like, whoa, what do I do now? Here goes my identity. And their hope is in the success of their child or having a child. They dedicate everything they can to, for that kid. Sacrifice everything they can for that kid. Thinking it's good, not that you should never sacrifice. They wipes that one out. And then this last one is the God of the soil. So it's really all their agriculture, all their food, everything. And I think, as I began to consider where we're at today in our own hearts, in our own culture, in our country, and how things are going. I mean, I was just devastated by everyone. I was, I was meeting all kinds of people. They were losing their jobs. People's houses are going to foreclosure, all that stuff. And I realized very quickly that it'd be very easy to pray, oh, make it better, make it better. Not wrong. But we have to realize that we live in Egypt. We live in Egypt. And our gods are slowly but assuredly being stripped away from us as we lose our jobs, as we lose relationships that were important to us, as we lose money, as we lose political races, as we lose our health. And God is slowly showing us that we've been worshiping other things other than the one true God finding our security and our hope and our meaning in these things. And he takes it away to, in many ways, prove that. We're idolaters in the very, in every sense of the word. I'm an idolater, and I get a new idol like every week. I mean, as people were starting to tell me about their jobs, I started to have fear. Started hearing about people losing their jobs, and like, okay, gosh, yeah, I should go back to teaching, and... I mean, I start asking myself, where's that coming from? Why am I scared? What's behind that? I mean, I could pray, oh, give everyone a job. Make them have millions of dollars. But what's behind that? And I think the magicians got one thing right. I don't think they were repentant. I don't think that they suddenly believed in Jesus and were singing all kinds of wonderful worship songs. They got one thing right. And it just cut me to the quick. I wonder if God is pointing the finger at us a little bit, at you, at me. And it is the finger of God, all this crumbling around us, all these things going bad, all this hopelessness we see. It's God pointing his finger at that which you and my, our faith, is conditioned on. Namely, 
you think about it, that thing you don't have that is making your life miserable, that one thing that if I just had, my life wouldn't be so bad. My house, my job, a payment, whatever it is, this relationship, this marriage. If I just had this one thing, life would be better. Or as long as I don't lose this thing, life is okay. That is your idol. That is the thing that's saving you other than the one true God, other than Jesus. It's not really hard to identify. What do you fear losing the most? What brings you the most joy? And if it's not Jesus, you're an idolater. And so am I. Because repentance isn't like, I repent, I believe, and I repentance is something... We do every day because there's always things that we begin to love more than Jesus. Things we begin to sacrifice for more than Jesus. Things that begin to dictate and govern our decisions more than Jesus. We're idolaters. And God, I think, very clearly in this economy in particular, is pointing right at us to say, there's your idol. There's your idol. With the hope that we will turn from our wickedness and cry out to God. But let's be real. There are several ways to cry out for God. And my fear is that we'll cry out like Pharaoh. We'll say, take away the frogs. Make it better. When he really wants us to cry out to take away our sin. Take away my security and other things. Take away my doubts. Take away my fears. Take away my uncertainties and insecurities. Take my weaknesses. Take my idols. And take my life. We take communion every Sunday. And it's both a celebration of the lengths that the one true God is willing to go to show how much He loves us. And we lift the bread, which is the body of Christ, and we dip it in the wine of the juice because it's the blood of Christ that was shed for us. If you're a Christian, if you're a part of the family, that's for you. And it's declare, as you declare God's greatness, in many ways we declare our own depravity. And we declare that you are the one true God, the only source of salvation. And if you're not a Christian, then I plead with you, I plead with you to accept Christ. God's wrath is here, either passively or actively, but it's coming. And I pray that you will accept that Jesus died on your cross for your sin. And he rose from the dead to prove that he was the one true God, that you might worship him and not the stuff that can't save you. It can't save you. Let's pray. Father God, I ask you show us mercy because we recognize and I recognize your holiness and your goodness and your greatness and your power, Lord. You are so good and so beautiful, Lord, and yet we get satisfied with that which is not even close to Father, we are so easily distracted. Our hearts are so easily pulled away from you.
I pray, Father, that You will break down our idols. That those who are believers here, Father, before they come and celebrate what You've done for us, they will search their hearts, Lord, and You will pierce them by Your Spirit of what they are worshiping and loving more than You. And for those who don't know You, God, I pray that they will begin to see that there is nothing that can save them but You. And Lord, when we all die, I pray that we will all with joy be able to say, as Paul wrote, that to live is Christ, to die is gain. We could lose it all because none of it compares to You. And if we lost it all, it would be gain because we would have You. I pray these things only because we are allowed to come into Your presence by the blood of Jesus Christ and ask that You continue to show us mercy and grace and love and forgiveness. In His name we pray. Amen. Please stand and respond with us.